0: This episode of Asymmetrical Haircuts is supported by JusticeInfo.net. And there's a, a big movement, I think, at the moment where there is this, you know, with sexual and gender based violence, let's, let's call it what it is, and the same applies with starvation. Why, why should it be something else?
1: Justice plays an important role. I consider this tribunal a false tribunal, and indictments false indictments.
0: Such abhorrent
2: crimes. Must not go unfunded. Proceedings will be long and complex.
0: All right. Hi,
1: Steph. Hi, Janet. Do you remember this Assembly of States parties way back in December? You know that big meeting of the state members, the International Criminal Court.
2: I remember walking
1: around a lot and handing out stickers to everybody. <laughs> we We'd, take them. We definitely did our best, but we actually forgot something. Ooh, what? We did not cover one of the very big positive things that happened at the ASP, as it's called. Uh, The Swiss, uh, behind the scenes and then um, out in front, got a unanimous decision by all of the states to allow prosecution of the intentional starvation of civilians in all kinds of war uh, as a war crime.
2: Yeah, I remember there was a lot about starvation as a war crime and I see it everywhere now. So I'm I'm really curious because I haven't been able to look into it. So,
1: Well, what we've got today is one of the people who was working at the Swiss Ministry of Foreign Affairs at the time, shepherding through Matthias Lantz. Hi Matthias, are you there?
3: Yes. Hi, everybody. Hi.
1: Matthias is on Skype, as you'll hear by the slightly boxy sound that we get that.
2: But in our studio with our lovely clear microphones, we have Catriona Murdoch, a lawyer with the Global uh, Rights Compliance, who's been working on the issue, writing papers, giving
0: trainings and
2: pushing Matthias a bit. Hi, Catriona.
0: <laughs> well, I think he's he's been uh, very gracious in in um, bringing me along in the process. So it's been very much a, a privilege for me. So,
1: Okay well welcome both of you to asymmetrical haircuts. We are going to start off straight into it. Stephanie has been doing something really ridiculous as far as I'm concerned. She's been reading the Rome Statute. She's been researching exactly what happened at the ICTY and where was starvation. So Over to you, Stephanie. What do you want to ask?
2: Well, I was wondering, like, why isn't it already a a war crime and a crime against humanity? So I read through the ICC statute where it's listed as a war crime of intentionally using starvation as a method of warfare, but also under crimes against humanity as an element of extermination. Um, as part of inflicting conditions designed to bring about the destruction of uh, part of a population. So my question really is, why then do you need it to be kind of an an extra crime? Um, couldn't you, whatever is not covered by the war crime, kind of take with that crime against humanity?
0: I think it's a good question and one certainly that we... Um, encountered in terms of and Matthias will will speak to that on pushback throughout the amendment process as to why why this is necessary and I think there's there's a a variety of reasons really that it was so key for for this amendment to happen and the first is is you had it in an international armed conflict and you didn't have it in a non-international armed conflict oh
1: right so I keep on getting it mixed up in my mind which is which so non-international is in my mind civil wars and international is invading one country to the other and previously it was civil oh it was a non-international previously
0: it was only international oh right and so given that the vast majority of all conflicts now were non-international and certainly the vast majority if not all of the conflicts where starvation is a feature is a non-international armed conflict there was this really significant gap in the law and I think aside from the sort of a technical gap in the law it just didn't quite make sense you know it was there in the Geneva conventions in both it was um when you look at the drafting commission as to why it was missed out on the Rome statute it was very much suggesting of a mistake or part of a negotiation of a package of of different crimes and and this one was you know sort of the lamb to slaughter really. But
2: if, if you look at you know for uh, crimes against humanity where it is listed you don't need this armed conflict bit so why then is it important for civil war couldn't you just if you have a civil war say oh well this crime against humanity what makes it important technically or just kind
0: of practically to make it a war crime? Well so it's not as far as I understand it's not specifically listed that the term starvation is not specifically listed under a crime against humanity. It can fall within a number of different crimes from inhumane treatment to genocide to um, forcible movement. You know, it could fit within a lot. And I think in any future prosecution, those will be the alternative crimes. But from a labeling perspective, I think it was really, really important and, and still is really important to have it clearly identified as the crime itself rather than being sort of um, subsumed into a different category of crime.
2: So, so in a way, it's, it, it's more like uh, the way you package it or, or kind of marketing, if and that's probably not the term, but. That makes it more explicit what is going on, instead of that you have to kind of fold it into exactly. extermination or this very vague bringing about conditions designed to uh, for the destruction of a part of the population, which is very difficult difficult to muddle
0: through if you're not a lawyer. Exactly, and it, and it was the same. You know, there's there's real parallels with the sexual and gender based violence. Um, you know, when prosecution. Prosecution started there, and when it was labelled more clearly, you know, it's very different calling rape an inhumane treatment as to calling it what it is. And there's a, a big movement, I think, at the moment where there is this, you know, with sexual and gender-based violence, let's let's call it what it is. And the same applies with starvation. Why why should it be something else? Um, Matthias, I'm wondering whether
1: this. Um the reason why the Swiss got involved was because it's this issue of war crimes and because you're kind of the home, the protectors of this, uh, the thing, um, IHL, International Humanitarian Law, and therefore, and it's been in international humanitarian law before, and now you want to make sure that, that it carries on through to the ICC. Can you tell us why it is the Swiss got involved?
3: Yeah, I mean, you, that, that, that's pretty much it. I think the the protection of, of the victims of war is just, is just really at the heart of, um, of Swiss foreign policy or has been at the heart of Swiss foreign policy for for a long time. And there was also a, a previous commitment for, for the topic of, of conflict and hunger more, more generally. Um, and um, you, you may know that the Security Council passed a resolution on this issue also in, in 2018, resolution 2417, and we, we were already involved at the time. And then uh, at some point, we, uh, well, we looked at the, at the Rome Statute and then we, we sort of discovered this, this, this huge gap in, in, in the statute. And that's when we started to think about uh, launching this, this initiative uh, uh, also in, in, in 2018.
1: Um, was it easy to get lots of support? I mean, is this, uh, is this a, a popular or, or an easy space to, to fill?
3: I think it was easy and not easy at the same time, uh, because we, we it didn't take too much time to have a uh, quite strong support from a, from a larger group of states. Because I think to, to many states, this was, this was sort of a no brainer. It was like, yeah, starvation, this is just not something that we want to tolerate. And we don't want to have this gap, uh, in the Rome Statute for, for any longer. So I think, uh, for, for a reasonably large, Group of states, we 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 didn't have any any problems to to convince them, but there was another group of states that was uh, that was more skeptical about this, and they made a number of arguments um, that then made the whole process uh, a bit more complicated, and the arguments weren't really linked to the crime as such, but to. Uh, uh, more to, to timing and other challenges of the court, and uh, do we do we have the resources to do this? Uh, it's probably covered already, etc. So there were more uh, general, um, you know, reservations about this this proposal, and not it wasn't really about uh, yes, we agreed to starvation, but there were other uh, sort of arguments that we had to overcome, and that was uh, that was a huge work to to do that, yeah.
2: I saw a massive eye roll from Catriona <laughs> <laughs> about how easy it was. So I'm, I'm kind of, uh, so it was easy and it wasn't easy, uh, on the one hand. Um, when you look at starvation uh, and the laws of international, uh, humanitarian law, um, Has it always been in there? And, you know, we know a lot about starvation, World War II, concentration camps, even, you know, I'm a super Yugo uh, fanatic, so I know all about Bosnia and starvation and camps over there. So I was actually surprised that it didn't um, come up in my, I went to kind of Google search through ICTY verdicts to figure out where starvation came up and I didn't see it. So it's, it's always been there, but then not in the in the jurisprudence. And,
0: and not at Nuremberg? She just just no, throwing Nuremberg know, in there? Yes. No, I know. Well, I think Nuremberg's a sort of, it's a an interesting one. I mean, in, until the Geneva Conventions it, it simply wasn't there. So Nuremberg lost out in, in that sense. Um, and in in fact, there's a, a very famous quote from one of the trials there where the judge said that the, um, and this was in the von Lieb case, and he said, the proprietary of attempting to reduce it by starvation is not questioned. Hence, the cutting off of every source of sustenance from without is deemed legitimate. We might wish the law was, was otherwise, but we must administer it as we find it. And so I think, you know, Nuremberg was arguably a classic case and and you see um particularly Raphael Lemkin I mean his conceptualization of genocide was at the center was starvation and he, you know he looked at Ukraine looked of course at what was happening uh, during World War Two. and for him it was part of the the way that genocide should be construed but it wasn't taken up at Nuremberg and of course you know there's political reasons for that given the allied powers history and using it themselves so um, it was really the start with the the geneva conventions and certainly the additional protocols which were the real push behind it and then and well, then where and else then can we see fast forward 2002 rome rome Statute.
1: Oh, and come on, you're just uh, overlooking, overlooking the
0: ICTY, to, to ICTY I, I mean, it's yeah, it, it doesn't feature in either of those. Um, and interestingly, there was a really interesting um, investigation into the siege of Sarajevo, um, and, and that was, it was considered there. The as you'll both know the way that that statute and the court was set up was very very quick you know the the drafting of the statute it was a very swift turnaround from conflict to um, investigation to the creation of the court itself so it was surprising in in many ways that it didn't feature but it was considered and one of the findings that they came to with the siege of Sarajevo in particular was that because there was no uh, proof of death that they couldn't push it forward. So they looked to see how many they thought could be linked causally to the death, but they didn't think it was there in the end. Um, the, the treatment in the camps, I mean, I think when you look at the jurisprudence, so we we on our, um, we have a starvation website, um, org, and there we analyse all the jurisprudence and we've identified, I think it's about 22 28 cases now where it's mentioned peripherally through different crimes and so it's there in in the the, um, camps in uh, the ICTY jurisprudence of course it's there in Cambodia but it's always you know as a crime against humanity or something else Um, or you know attacks on civilian objects and things like that. With Rwanda, it was a bit different because it just didn't quite feature. It wasn't it wasn't that type of conflict. Um, there was some. There's two references to it, in part of the um, preventing them from getting to banana plantations, but very very minimal. Um, so it just it just wasn't part of that matrix.
1: But ICC at least has it as a one part, and you
0: were filling the gap on the exactly, other part. Exactly. Exactly.
2: A lot of the articles that I read mention that um, starvation, in a way, is you. You made the the rape analogy before mm. that. Rape is often the, treated as a kind of byproduct, or that's just exactly. what happens in war, and it's a kind of collateral damage. Uh, can Can you explain how that that works for starvation? It's not yeah. seen as a separate crime, but just something that happens because war is
0: chaos and. Exactly. I mean, I think the parallels are really, really strong. I mean, it, it's, you know, this the, with women it was this boys will be boys, you know, this is just what happens, it's unfortunate that's what happens in conflict. And until, you know, civil society kind of got behind it and until there was prosecutions and, and you know, um, jurisprudence, it really wasn't taken as seriously. And it's the same with starvation. You know, obviously people go hungry in conflict. It's one of those things, you know, resources are... Uh, stolen, looted, destroyed, uh, reduced. Um, climate is, you know, another factor, and I think it, it was very much the perception that, you know, this was there were so many different factors at play here. How could you possibly pin it to a perpetrator or a state? So I think that that that's been a sort of clear running trend throughout.
1: Well, maybe a question to both of you, Matthias. First, um, could you actually imagine um, a trial using? Uh, starvation as a war crime as one of the bases. Um, let's say we had this imaginary world with a with a Security Council referral of a place like Syria. Can can you imagine a, an ICC trial happening, Matthias?
3: Um, yeah, I mean it's definitely a possibility that this becomes. Um becomes a reality at some stage, I think we would have to talk a little bit about uh, the, the issue of jurisdiction, because um, the situation would, wouldn't be necessarily the same when there would be a Security Council referral and in a situation where there would not be such a referral. Um in the case of a security council referral, uh, then I think that definitely becomes a possibility in, in any conflict now, and um, I mean that would then be up to to the prosecutor to figure out whether uh, there is sufficient evidence uh, for uh, a starvation. And what is often the more uh, the bigger challenge is to link. Uh, the crime to, to, to specific people. Um, but that's, that's a really hard guess to, to make. But at least uh, the possibility will be there. And I think uh, with the new crime, prosecutors are encouraged also to look at this, uh, at this crime now. Uh, I think that's a really important change uh, uh, with this crime.
1: It, do you agree, Catriona? It's I do. more. It, what specifically about what makes it difficult to do? Then, what, how do you actually put somebody on trial
0: for starvation? Yeah. Well, it, I mean, I think the thing is, is with all novel crimes, there's challenges. You know, the prosecutors are and judges are inherently more comfortable with trials and and. Crimes that are much more well trodden there 's a body of jurisprudence. The contours of those crimes are better understood with starvation it's it's going to take you know to shape those contours to understand where the thresholds are, what type of victims you need, what scale we 're looking at um, and and the sort of you know um, crime patterns how how it 's going to look in practice and um, so I think of course there'll be challenges, and you know given the challenges and some of the um, you know failure of um, convictions, if we can put it that way uh, at the ICC I think they 're going to be slightly more cautious about doing anything too progressive. but that said, you know you look at some of the comments coming out of the ICj with the Rohingya situation where starvation is being discussed. We've had an openness from the ICC asking, you know, how do we feature this in our preliminary examinations, our investigations, you know, so there's, there's an, an interest there. And, and it's certainly from our perspective, you know, having worked across a number of the, the courts and tribunals, it's by no means insurmountable. It's, it's, it's new, but it doesn't make it inherently more difficult.
2: And that there is that, that difficult word in the wording for this crime uh, is intentionally causing the starvation. So is this going to be uh, like the genocide where you have to prove the, in, the specific intent and how, how difficult would that uh, be if you can imagine it?
1: Well, um, take that further. I agree. No. That's, why don't you imagine it in a specific situation? Mm. Like, you know, We know that there's a starvation going on
0: at the moment in Yemen. How would you prove that? So, t- taking the first um question or the first part of the question um it's so we we are trying to there are of course parallels with genocide. both of the crimes are likely, and well, certainly with genocide, starvation is likely to be defined by its intent it's a specific intent crime that goes beyond the conduct or the consequence um of of the the actions of of the act. So in that sense there are parallels but where we say that it will be different is the the body of jurisprudence behind genocide has developed so that you need a purpose, you have to have a specific purpose to desire in whole or in part to destroy the group. So where we see it Being different, and this is how we've analysed it in our our legal writing to date, is that that purpose-based element of genocide we say wouldn't be the same for starvation. So we consider, and if you look at the way that the the construct of the crime and the way that the drafting commissions have has it been put together. Um, and the comments that were made during that process, we think it's very much more likely that when it's prosecuted, a virtual certainty test would be sufficient to meet. What does that mean? So the virtual certainty. So if you take it then in the context of Yemen. So Yemen is a, um, uh, you know, a, a country that had 90 percent of its imports, relied, relied on food and all of its supplies, 90 percent. So it was a fragile uh, economy and a fragile country. You then take the war um, where you start with a a variety of different crimes. So um, a, a campaign of airstrikes, a blockade that for a period of about 10 days closed off the entire country. And then intermittently from 2017 onwards, there's been a partial blockade where there's been no um, humanitarian uh, evacuations, no air- the airports have all been closed, and a huge reduction in what's been able to move around the country and get in. So taking that pre-existing condition of a country that is already very vulnerable, has uh, insecurity, food insecurity issues to start with, and then you place a military campaign on top of that, it is a virtual certainty that a country such as Yemen, would its food insecurity would decrease, it would plummet. And then you filter in, you know, years now of international condemnation, years of reporting on the statistics of famine and IPC4 and, 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 you know, vast numbers that we're dealing with. And yet it still continues. And there's been no Reduction, well, no meaningful reduction in parts of that conflict. So, I think there, and and place on top of that, you have comments from you know the Saudi-led coalition who are, you know, putting in money into the economy to stave off hunger. You have a situation where it's very clear that you can see that what you're doing is going to have a knock-on effect. And we say that type of virtual certainty, um, mens rea, would be what would be sufficient for starvation.
1: But if the Saudis say we're putting
0: um, money in to stop starvation, that's their defense, isn't it? I don't. I mean, I just don't think it would be a defense that would stand up, hmm. in my view.
1: Well, that's an interesting one.
2: Yeah, well, that is going to be very much um, interesting on which facts then kind of support this, uh, yeah. this intent. Yeah. Um, You've written, yeah, so the the one of the intent you've written that starvation and famine famine rarely occurs in a vacuum. So mm. yes, the, the 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 real problem is going to be how to separate this from other food and and insecurity issues.
0: And I think that's also been one of the reasons for lack of prosecutions and a lack of um, you know investigative. Uh, interest in this because it it has been complex you know particularly as a lot of the deaths usually occur from associated diseases you know it's quite rare for somebody to actually die of of starvation itself you know a lack of food and water it tends to be you know then you have a cholera epidemic which will wipe out a huge number of people so it's complicated. But again, you know, that's sort of the bread and butter of international criminal law. It's this being able to discern in a very complex, multi-causal chaos of, of you know, the theatre of war, and be able to pick out and, and make that linkage evidence um, stand up. So,
1: um, You're travelling a bit, as far as I can see, um, talking to different lawyers and NGOs, and um, particularly on this, I'm sure you work on other issues as well how do you try to how do you guide people through you know what what they need to know about it what what it is what it, what are you telling people
0: well i think i mean it's a really interesting question and i think you know we're now at the stage sort of two and a bit years in where you know it's overwhelmingly people coming to us and and it, the question is really different depending on your mandate so you have the likes of the world food program who we've been working with quite closely who will say, you know, we need advice on how to leverage our negotiations for access. We, we've we been stopped, we're not able to get into country X, Y and Z, what do we do? Is so what can you practically suggest you, to us that, that will give us a bit yeah, of an elbow to, to yeah, push, exactly, push the other side? Exactly. And then you have, you know, the likes of uh, Yemeni civil society groups who were really sort of the genesis of this project saying, you know, we see this devastating our communities, but we don't know how to what do we call this you know how do we how do we document this how, where do we go do we do we go to hospitals do we go to the ports where they're being blocked which you know which parts of this do we look at so it it's very much i mean i think the the amendment process was such a important part to galvanizing on an international level understanding about this being a deliberate act this is not something that just happens in conflict this is very much a a deliberate conduct and so now that we have the strength of that amendment and the tireless work that the Swiss did in all of those multilateral bilateral high-level discussions and negotiations it it means now that there's a level of understanding but you know, it depends on the state that you're dealing with or the organisation as to their interest and their understanding.
1: Do you want to just uh, accept that uh, shout out, Matthias, <laughs> as uh, having, uh, the Swiss having uh, changed the world through this? Is that, um, that, uh, that because you, you actually put this on the agenda that you, we might see some successful prosecutions?
3: I'm very happy to accept this idea that I have changed the world to the better. (laughs) No, seriously, I I think, um, I mean, uh, we started this, you know, not with this sort of broad approach in mind. I was uh, at the beginning primarily uh, a gap in the Rome Statute that we saw, and then working on this initiative, we were... Realized that other people, like Catriona are working on the same issue from a different perspective, and and even other people, other states, etc. So all of a sudden, we had this network of people uh, that that sort of uh, worked broadly on the same issue, and and I'm really happy that um, that uh, this discussion on the on the amendment and uh, the the adoption sort of ha- had a positive effect on this, on, you know addressing this this really serious and and
2: and real problem. And do you see, because you you train people to now possibly prosecute this and you've had discussions with the ICC uh, OTP from what I understand about how to prosecute, do you see that as the most possible uh, kind of place where you would see a starvation prosecution or are there other kind of local uh, jurisdictions that are maybe advancing cases? Where would you expect to see a first Mm -hmm. starvation case?
0: I think... uh, I mean, we're looking at all options. I mean, the, the particularly the um, Commissions of Inquiry, um, it's South Sudan Commission of Inquiry particularly, who's led by Andrew Clapham, um, are doing brilliant work on this. And we see now over the last two years a huge take-up in accountability in, in slightly more creative or different forms. So the Commissions of Inquiry, Yemen, Syria, South Sudan, South Sudan in particular, have really started to focus on this. Um, The ICJ, as I mentioned already, has been fairly progressive and very progressive in looking at this issue and I, I foresee the Rohingya situation, be it at the ICJ or be it at the ICC, being certainly one to watch. Um, The ICC, you know, we had the decision yesterday on Afghanistan. It's becoming more progressive. I I have, you know, I'm an eternal optimist. Um, Well, you have to be if you work in this field, don't you? (laughs) But then there's universal jurisdiction. You know, you have countries such as the Netherlands that have had it as a a crime in both conflict designations for a long time. So is Germany. Um, You know, you have active universal jurisdiction centres around the world, particularly in Europe. And so, I, yeah, I'm positive that we could see it in a number of different avenues.
2: I have one, one more question before we turn to our standard asymmetrical haircuts questions. When you make that link with Rohingya and the genocide mm-hmm. cases, one of the things that pops up to me is that if we have this and it's going to be prosecuted, are we going to have the same numbers game that we have with genocide? How many people oh, have yeah, to the, be affected yeah, before difference- it's actually starvation? And is it not just...
1: The different interpretations of what makes a genocide, you know, huge numbers or not.
0: Yes. Yeah, well, the interesting thing for starvation, and it's interesting and it's also slightly challenging for those documenting, is that there's no requirement of proof of consequence. So you don't have to demonstrate death or people are actually starving. Um, It was suggested during the drafting commission, I think, by the Americans who said um, it should be included and have died from starvation and it was roundly um, accepted by everybody that was just not necessary you don't need that consequence to happen which is why you know it has this specific intent um, aspect to it that said what we encourage to anybody who's documenting or investigating this is of course you're going to have to have uh you know to demonstrate that there is a consequence from a factual perspective um i, I can't see any sensible prosecutor or investigator like at the icty who would take this forward where you have no um supporting information or evidence that there is harm occurring so i, sus- I mean personally i suspect that the first types of prosecutions will be big numbers. I think you'll be looking at, um, if you're outside of a sort of detention scenario, you'll be looking at, yeah, significant numbers of people suffering.
1: Well, on that level. (laughs) Um, um, Yeah, our first question um, that we always ask for uh, our standard questions is, is there something that we should have asked that we didn't ask? Matthias, is there something we should have asked you?
3: Um, no, I think maybe I just I just want to underscore one point that that Catriona already mentioned. I think it's really important to 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 be aware that this uh, sort of small change of the Rome Statute can can have a big trickle down effect because it does inspire um, prosecutors all over the world in national jurisdiction to to act on this issue as well. It, it probably inspires national legislators to include this crime in their uh, national legislation because there's only uh, a relatively limited number of states who, who really have that already it will uh, inspire uh, drafters of military manuals to put that in there. So I think there's a broader Trickle down effect, and and I think that's that's the real uh, um, sort of effect that this crime is going to have, and probably it's not the the prosecution at the ICC in in, in the next two years or something like that, uh, but a more general um, uh, more general effect. Um, other than that, I think um, you asked all the important questions.
0: Thank you, Catriona. And you want what? I think I think I suppose the only question could be you know what do we do what what how can we encourage you know more action on this and I I I suppose what following on from what Mateus said is encouraging you know national states to ratify the Rome statutes to make sure that if you are you know active in universal jurisdiction or your war crimes units your prosecutors your investigators be that on a national or international level um, don't dismiss this you know have, have this have this in mind when you're considering what types of violations are occurring. And our other big question
2: is, what do always people always get wrong about your jobs? If you say you work on starvation, are they expecting you to weigh underweight children and <laughs> hand out plumpy nut bars <laughs> in refugee
0: camps? Um, do you know, I don't think there has been any uh, real misunderstanding um, so far. Um, no, I don't think there has. And
1: um, something for both of you. Is there anything that you've recently watched or read that you'd like to
0: recommend to others? Uh, so I think I, I've just finished reading um, a book that I can't remember the name of the author called A Girl Returned. It's an Italian um, author who Elena Ferrante's um, translator has done it. It's a very small, beautiful book. Um, highly recommend it. It was great. I just watched the Four Samar, which I'm, I think I guess everybody's been talking about after the oh the, the Syrian Bafti- movie, yeah, which yeah. is, oh, yeah. Phew, I mean, harrowing but, but very beautiful. Um, yeah, I suppose those oh, are the. We see two. that
2: the girl returned was written by Donatella di oh, Pi- oh, Pietri. Pietrantonio.
1: Pietrantonio. Sorry, yes. we're not Italian. No, yes. well um, <laughs> Matthias could probably <laughs> do that better than <laughs> <being Yeah. swear. laughs> And Anything you want to add, Matthias?
3: Um, no, I think it's fine. I think that that was a that was a good answer, and I don't have anything uh, that that sort of fits the fits the context.
2: Is there anything not just so much about this subject, but that you read at the beginning of your career where you are like, "This is really why it's important what I do. This is this strikes a chord with me. This is why we're doing this."
3: Um, well, I think the most. Um, the biggest effect on, on me and and uh, sort of the interest in this work was actually uh, um, not really a, a piece of literature or a movie or something like that, but uh, a professor that I used to have at the University of Geneva, uh, Marcus Assoli. Um, he used to be a delegate with the ICRC for 14 years, and then he became a university professor. And I think think his kind of um, uh, ability to link the practice. Um, of, of the humanitarian work uh, with the academic research and teaching I think that was probably the most inspiring uh, um, thing that happened to me uh, early in my career and, and really encouraged me to, to, to work in this field.
1: Great thank you very much for that and we'll make links to all of those different things. Just final thing this can't happen for you Matthias so just apologies for a moment. We're now going to hand out the, and I'm shaking it in front of the microphone so that everybody knows, we've got the uh, the latest um, special uh, gift, which is a, not very um, substantial, but a uh, water bottle. Thank the you very much for cool haircuts water bottle. Uh, we always try and give a gift to our uh, to our guests. So there you go. Yes because <laughs> they all come on this show and we don't pay them or they get anything. They just have to show up
2: on their own time yep. and with their own money and all they get are cookies and cake. <laughs> <laughs> and Yeah, we keep mentioning months. the cookies and cake. We <laughs> yeah. haven't had any this time. No. So
1: okay, I'm looking for that next. <laughs> okay, bye Matthias. We're going to we're going to cake cookie away here. <laughs>
0: Thank you very much for joining us.
3: and thanks for inviting me to to speak to you.
0: Thanks, bye. Thank you as well. Thank you. This podcast was created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. It is published in partnership with justiceinfo.net. You can find show notes and additional blogs on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. It is recorded in the Hague Humanity Hub. Home to a community of innovators in the field of peace, justice, development and humanitarian action. Music is by audionautics.com and the show is available on every major podcast service. So please subscribe, give us a rating and spread the word.